Living la vida loca, talking about a low carb diet. Uh-huh. Getting your body healthy, and ain't no doubt about it. Yeah, it's really about ketosis, a ketogenic life. Yeah, a real time indicator for ketosis called ketonics. It messes your breath for ketones. Are you burning fat? Uh-huh. It's the first of its kind. All my ketonians, where you at? Hey, I'm just here to let you know. Wanna look and feel incredible. We living la vida low carb. Get your body healthy and live long. Hey. Keep my fats high, and my carbs low. Need my glucose down right now, pronto. Check my ketones, look at the stats, yo. With ketonics, now I'm in the burning fat zone. Ketonics, we burning fat, yeah, we on it, yeah, yeah. With ketonics, I'm burning fat, and I'm on it, yeah, yeah. Living la vida low carb, I do this every day. If you want to burn that fat, it ain't no other way, yeah. Go to ketonics.co. And for my international followers, it's ketonics.com. Woo! Uh, living la vida low carb. This show is changing lives. We talking about your diet. Trying to get you feeling bright. Cut up them avocados. Fry some eggs. Time to explore. The longest running health podcast. Hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey, the Living Low Carb Show.com. Woo! Hey, hey guys, we're back here on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And today I'm very privileged to welcome to the podcast a lady by the name of Sally Norton. And she has a Bachelor of Science degree uh, in nutrition from Cornell, a master's degree in public health leadership from UNC Chapel Hill. She spent over three decades promoting health from a variety of vantage points. And she's here today because she has an interesting take on uh, on something that I think will be of great interest to the ketogenic community. Sally, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jimmy. It's exciting to be with you. And I know I've spoken with you at various conferences and you've always pulled me to the side and said, Jimmy, we got to talk about this topic that we're going to talk about here today. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds really fascinating. And uh, before we get into said topic, let's get to know you a little bit more. What what first draw you or drew you to the world of health? Oh, you know, I think I was born like this. I was already running home from kindergarten and telling my mother about the exciting nutrition uh, information they were giving us in school. (laughs) Honest to God. Really? It was a seventh grade film strip about health and certain foods could give you cancer and certain foods would protect you from cancer. And I thought, cool, you know, if all of us knew how to live and what to eat, then we could avoid cancer and disability and just be productive and happy and enjoy our lives. So I decided within a couple of days of seeing that film strip in seventh grade that I would get a degree in nutrition. That is wicked. Isn't that weird? I'm very I, weird. I was not that sophisticated in the seventh grade. <laughs> boys weren't, I have to confess, I didn't think the boys were too sharp at that point. They got better a couple of years later. So you got uh, interested in nutrition. You pursued it academically. What did you think you were going to do with your life uh, with this knowledge And how did things actually turn out? Well, you know, I was always interested in that idea of wellness and getting the most out of life. And so I was not really into the hospital dietetics where you serve people jello and it's kind of too late. 
I always have had a bias towards prevention. And I was lucky when I worked in the inner city in Cleveland, I was doing health promotion there, working with both youth and adult communities. A guy who came over from Nigeria told me that UNC Chapel Hill had a great public health school and I must go get a master's in public health. And I'm like, okay, Fred, you're probably right. And that's what I did. And when I got there, I thought I was going to study health behavior because I thought, well, how do we create permanent change in individual lives and in our wider society? To me, that was the big important question. So at first I thought, well, I'll get another degree in nutrition. I thought, oh, nobody needs more biochemistry. We need human behavior change. Hmm. Uh, And so that was my, but I was really especially interested in aging successfully because it seemed like people got a little too decrepit, a little too soon and spent too many years not really living life. And it didn't fit with my prevention orientation. So that led me to integrative medicine and holistic approaches to thinking about all the aspects of what it takes to be healthy. So I moved past nutrition to just the broader public health vantage point where we're thinking about all the different layers of things that affect our health. Well, and that's where the consumer is right now. They're trying to I guess, get through all this muckety-muck that's out there as it relates to nutrition. In fact, as of the recording of this, just this morning, I had a Facebook message of somebody saying, I don't know what to believe anymore. It's just so confusing. There's just so much information out there. And my advice to her was find a few people that you trust and tinker and test uh, what they're saying um, because it can get overwhelming. And I, you know, as someone who's just a lay person as well, kind of trying to take all of this in and figure out what what all of this means for me personally, but also to the collective. Um, how do you help people distinguish what's right from what's wrong? Well, first of all, I, I my heart breaks for everyone who's trying to figure this out right now. There are so many voices and contradicting opinions and the doctors don't seem to be in the least bit uh, oriented toward nutrition whatsoever. And they're more confused than the consumer. I think (laughs) half the people who go to the doctor know more about nutrition than the doctor does. Unless it's the keto diet. Unless it's the keto diet and they say, stop that or I'll have to put you on a statin. Oh, absolutely. And and of course, and I worked in the field of trying to bring conventional healthcare providers up to a, a little bit of knowledge and familiarity with the terminology and holistic healing. And there's a huge amount of resistance to that. Um, And it turns out that doctors and experts are human beings too. And we're all, it's all built on a very shaky foundation of cultural and economic bias. And that explains a lot of the confusion because there's a lot of um, maybe impure motives behind a lot of the things we've been told. Well, and I would even add to that, uh, impure motives, lack of scientific evidence behind a lot of the things that have been promoted. And everybody thinks the dietary guidelines are solidly built on sound science. Well, not my community. They're all skeptics, but uh, the general public, they think, oh, well, they've been vetted out. They wouldn't put this out to the public if it hadn't been fully scientifically vetted and nothing could be further from the truth. Very sad. Great example of the abuse of power. It's really, and unfortunately, we've allowed economic biases like the pharmaceutical industry to have way too much influence in political processes and 
it just it's kind of like high school in a way like <laughs> the the votes at the end of senior year who's the who's the greatest this or that and right. that's kind of who gets in a position of authority who who's the who got the best grades at whatever institution who fought and clawed their way to a position of influence and they have too big a microphone sometimes and the most likely to succeed uh at the 20 year re- reunion is the <laughs> yeah. biggest loser of them all. <laughs> exactly. And and so that's a hopeful message because in the long run, this um, false information will crumble. And it, unfortunately there's a lot of victims in the path of that destructive process. There really is. And, and I would say silent victims because they don't know that they've been bamboozled and they don't know that the information that they've been believing and, oh yeah, by the way, Nina Teicholz tells us have been following to a T we've obediently cut our fat. Yeah. We have obediently done all the things they told us to do and yet health has gotten worse. And at some point, and I think we're already in the beginning stages of that point, thanks to podcasts like this one and other, other efforts that are out there, but the general public is waking up and there's kind of a saying in today's society, have you gotten woke yet? Well, I think there's a bunch of people getting woke right about now um, as it relates to nutrition. And but but how is that going to manifest in the culture once the general collective of patients in the society are woke? Um, how does that show up and, and at what point does it shift the thinking culturally by our doctors and by researchers and by even the pharmaceutical companies that real change can happen. Well, the more and more people who are personally touched and thank you for all your work in helping to reach and touch people, the more things start open opening up, but each individual person has to let down their own guard and their own resistance to fresh information sometimes we're clinging to beliefs because it's it provides us with a security and a continuity in our lives so what my kindergarten teacher taught me was precious i i was wide open and trusted these adults and wanted to believe in them and my professor t colin campbell at cornell i wanted to believe in what i was learning there but it was real life that steadily over the years undid a lot of the conclusions of my professors and of the authorities. And it wasn't but a few years out of college where it started things I was taught just obviously weren't true. But not a a lot of my colleagues didn't have that insight and they're still promoting the wrong mindset. All right. Now you've opened up a can of worms by mentioning T. Colin Campbell. (laughs) I had no idea he was your professor in college. Yes, yes. And I knew his daughter. She was lived across the hall from me. Yeah. In the dorm. Yeah. Wow. Now and for, she's still for those of you who, who don't know his book. name, that's the guy that wrote the China study book that's kind of the Bible for the vegan community. Yeah. Yeah. It's just sad. It's what was that all... like being in a class taught by I mean I, what was the class? Well, at the time he was complaining that he couldn't get funding to analyze his data. And was very victimized by that problem. And um, the, his ideology wasn't so obvious to me because I, too, had read Francis Moore LePay's book and at the time was a vegetarian myself. And then when John Robbins' book, Diet for a New America, came out, I converted to veganism. So I had eight years vegetarian and eight years veganism 
And that combination helped to make me a pretty disabled, <laughs> pathetic person while I'm trying to get my graduate degree. Wow. What yeah. was the class that uh, T. Colin Campbell taught? Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. Um, biochemistry, nutritional biochemistry. And wow. that class, just like trying to figure it out. And it, the interesting thing of that class, pretty sure it was his class. We had four TAs. I think all, at least three of them were MDs coming back to get a degree in nutrition on top of their MD degree. And they told me that when you're in the hospital as a dietitian, you need to make your um, patient recommendations seem like it's the doctor's idea because the dietitian's status in the hospital is less than that of the janitor. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. Wow. That was... That just reinforced my feeling that I did not want to be a jello pusher in the hospital. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, wow, <laughs> that's shocking. <laughs> so biochemistry, so uh, I'm assuming they didn't get into a lot of the concepts of carbohydrate metabolism, uh, gluconeogenesis, other kinds of concepts, uh, or did they? I, not a lot. The thing I remember most from um, nutritional biochem was that we had to figure out a patient plan based on being able to interpret blood tests. And, you know, I know now how weak testing the plasma is and telling us really what's going on in the body. So I'm glad I never became a big expert in that. <laughs> but the, the where I think he influenced the curriculum is I took a summer class called Diet for a Small Planet which was all the pro-vegan propaganda. There was yeah. almost no science in that class, almost none. And I have to believe that since he was, he's the most ideologic and vocal vegetarian on, on the faculty, that he was behind that course, even though he didn't teach it. Well, and even now in 2018, uh, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, I hate even using that phrase, because I don't think they're responsible or <laughs> about medicine, Barnard. but PCRM uh, mm -hmm. led by Neil Barnard, they're yeah. actually putting a vegan propaganda nutritional education piece in every single medical school. I, I got one of these in my hands recently, and it's just vegan propaganda being given to mm -hmm. every single medical school student in 2018. Well, I know Neil Bernard because I was a vegetarian and he came to our vegetarian society and I met Dean Ornish and a lot of these, um, John McDougall, to me, you know, that whole group plus John Robbins, they've caused a lot of misinformation. And I think we should start a study, Jimmy, to yeah. see how it is that they're surviving their own diet. Are they actually <laughs> following it? Because if they are, then they're exceptional human beings and we should find out what's so special about them. Well, and, and the dirty little secret about veganism that is rarely talked about is most of them can't stick with it and, and they do end up going to animal products again. And I think you can do a mostly uh, plant based and maybe be generally healthy, which is this is kind of a segue into what we're going to talk about primarily here today. But you have another, uh, I guess, take on all of this regarding plants, and it's it's great that you've come from a plant-based background, because what you're about to say is highly, highly controversial and yet could help a lot of people here today. And and this is where you got my attention. I believe it was at uh, Low Carb USA West Palm Beach about a year ago. Uh, yeah, in January. Said, yeah. So you said, 
you know, we need to really expose this whole oxalate issue as it relates to plants. And I'm like, well, let's get you on the podcast. So we finally got you here today. Why don't you tell us a little bit of the story of the of oxalates and why it should be on our radar screen? Well, um, oxalate is a chemical toxin that no one's heard about except some kidney doctors have heard about it. And it's lurking in what we believe are otherwise healthy and familiar foods like sweet potatoes, almonds, peanuts, and spinach. And, and But we're resisting the idea, whether you're a scientist or not, logical it is that these friend foods actually have a serious flaw okay. in that in terms of their safety because they're plants and plants make toxins which are necessary for their survival that harm their predators and we're a predator of plants when we're eating them so we have a collective feeling right now that plants are benevolent and benign and they're just there for us to gobble them up and that's the only reason they exist but um that denial is of the sort of brutal chemical warfare that plants are required to have in order to survive just sitting there in one spot. If they weren't toxic, they'd be extinct because they would have been eaten into oblivion right. by somebody, bugs, funguses, animals, or humans. Um, but so the denial that we have about the idea that plants could have toxins, even the plants we eat, I mean, think about eating your bushes in your yard. How good is that going to work out for you? Yeah. <laughs> That's because they're even more toxic than the ones you cook up in your frying pan. But the um, the denials affecting science and the way they're ignoring and dropping and diluting the scientific discoveries and information that's been there for 175, maybe 200 years. And so that resistance is our own tragic downfall because we're not paying attention to the relative toxicity of certain foods and the lack of awareness is putting us all at risk for oxalate poisoning, including children. I just found a yet another article written by some doctors in Pittsburgh about three young children who were being given almond milk and all three had kidney stones and blood in their urine and all kinds of kidney problems as a result of being given almond milk. Almonds are full of toxins, especially a lot of bioavailable oxalate, which means it can get into your bloodstream pretty easily. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, you're not paying attention to your enemy. It's hard to tell that anything's going on there. You don't have a distinction to even observe your own body and how well you're doing on these things because you would never suspect them. And that's the case with many of my clients, especially with almonds. Almonds right now are at the top of the heap of something marvelous. Superfood. Low-carb superfood, as is a lot of other high-oxalate foods like spinach. I love turmeric. spinach. Yeah. yeah, people like spinach. It's tender. It's quick to cook. It's versatile. Um, it's kind of useless, though, as a nutritional delivery system, and it's quite toxic. And we've known it for a very long time. It's even capable of killing rats. And we knew that in the 1930s, that if you fed spinach only to rats, they couldn't survive long. I need to throw a bunch of that in my backyard where I have the problem. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, the short lived rabbits and things that are messing with your yard. Unfortunately, they seem to do okay on oxalates, I think, because their lifespan is short. I, I don't, it certainly we're not rabbits. And that's another place where science gets us a little mixed up. We try to pretend we're rabbits. In fact, in the cholesterol literature, it was rabbits. Right. They, that know, was so. that. Yeah. Ansel Keys took the rabbit and ran with it. Yeah. And we're not rabbits. 
Yeah. So the rabbit can do better on oxalate foods than we can. We're we're not we don't have a history of eating like rabbits, and we shouldn't probably adopt a rabbit based diet. So a lot of people hearing this right now go, okay, all right, oxalates, okay, just something else to have to worry about, Sally. Thanks. I know. And How so, depressing. <laughs> what'd you say? How depressing How for depressing. everybody else. Yeah. Oh, God, one more negative response, one more negative message. Yeah. Well, and this goes back to the question earlier of, you know, who who do you believe? What do you believe? And, and you know, you've got people out there like Dr. Stephen Gundry talking about, you know, avoiding lectin-based foods, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, and, and then, you know, you've got people with autoimmune protocol having to avoid eggs and nightshades and this and that and so and dairy. And so it can get where your head just spins round and round and round. So let's talk about specifically with the oxalates, um, who actually needs to avoid foods that uh, have oxalates in them specifically? And how would they know if they have some kind of um, reaction to it? Are there symptoms that show up that they need to be on the lookout for? Okay, so... Who needs to be aware of oxalates? Well, since we don't have a lot of science on how bad and how common oxalate toxicity is, and oxalate toxicity means you've got too much in your system, we don't have a solid scientific answer. But So it helps to understand a little bit how oxalates work and what foods are delivering them. And it's not like an allergy diet, like, oh, I have to never eat an egg again, because you're always going to have some oxalate in your body because your body makes a little oxalate every day as part of your metabolism. It turns vitamin C and proline and some amino acids like that into oxalate in a slow, steady, um, small rate unless you have a very rare genetic disorder and then you produce a lot of it. And so a lot of science about what can go wrong in the body is available potentially if we did a little deeper study of these rare genetic disordered people who show up sometimes very suddenly with failed kidneys, kidney stones, and pain all over their bodies. And many don't live very long because they die from the oxalate poisoning because the oxalate is being produced so at such high level. So it's not a complete avoidance diet. Okay. It turns out that anybody can overdo oxalate. And the more your digestive system allows to get into your bloodstream, the higher your exposure So the two most important factors are, are you eating a lot of it? Are you eating high doses and concentrated forms like a spinach smoothie? Are you doing that frequently? And how is your gut health and how is your kidney health? Because Mm -hmm. the gut health determines, and we don't even know why some people are what we call hyper absorbers who are absorbing like 60% of the oxalate versus the expected five to 10% of what you eat. We expect about that much to be absorbed. But in fact, um, that's probably getting more and more rare that people absorb only that little amount because we have dysbiosis, which means the gut flora is not so good. Yeah, We have lower calcium diets because we're giving up dairy products and cheese and things like that. So there's without calcium, calcium is a magnet for oxalate. Oxalate starts off as oxalic acid, which is a tiny little molecule with only two carbons. I mean, it's as tiny as a molecule could get, not be water or something really ultra tiny and that is an acid which drops its hydrogens and becomes a a strong negatively charged compound has electromagnetic principle that just draws a positive charge and the calcium loves the oxalating so you see it mostly as calcium oxalate and so it's oxalate causes calcification in the body 
So anyone who's got any evidence of calcification in the body, you've ever had a kidney stone, well, 80% of kidney stones are made of calcium oxalate. But your doctor tells you it's the calcium, not the oxalate. So for years, doctors blamed calcium for the damage the oxalate's doing. And they're still trying to undo that attitude, even though for 20 years we've known that calcium protects us from oxalate, especially in the gut. If calcium's hanging around in the gut, well, it grabs that oxalate before you get a chance to absorb it. And when it's a calcium oxalate crystal, it's a less likely to be absorbed, but even some of that gets absorbed anyway. I want some pizza. I'm just in the mood. So I check the website. Real good foods. But I'm trying to eat healthy. Trust. No flour. It's 11 inch cauliflower crust. Low carb, high fat, and plenty protein. Grain and gluten free. Everything that you need. Made in four flavors. Ooh wee. Uncured pepperoni, margarita, veggie, or cheese. If low carb pizza is what you want, you need to check realgoodfoods.com. Taste is amazing. Oh yeah, it's the bomb. You need to check realgoodfoods.com. Free shipping online and in Kroger stores across the U.S. RealGoodFoods.com Are you looking for a quick keto meal that has not just a little bit of protein in it, but also all the electrolytes, vitamins, protein, fat, and more that will meet one-third of your daily needs? Then let me introduce you to Keto Chow. It's a quick and easy-to-mix shake. That is designed to give you a complete ketogenic meal. You're able to customize the calories because you decide how much fat to add. Most people mix it with heavy whipping cream, but you can also use avocado oil, coconut cream, a little MCT oil, or any other fat of your choice. Keto Chow is designed specifically for people on the go to replace one to two meals in their day. It comes in eight flavors, including chocolate, vanilla, chocolate peanut butter, cookies and cream, strawberry, mocha, banana, and salted caramel in both individual meal samples as well as a large 21 meal bag. There's also a sample of all the things bundle that has one of each flavor plus a Keto Chow blender bottle to get you started. Head on over to JimmyLovesKetoChow.com and use the coupon code LLVLC to get 10% off of your first order. JimmyLovesKetoChow.com So let's talk about a few more of the keto foods since a lot of my audience eats low-carb, high-fat, um, and, and you're not anti Keto, uh, not in the uh, least, not in the least. And so, you know, you mentioned spinach as a big oxalate filled food. What are some other and, and almonds? What are some other keto friendly foods that my audience needs to be aware of that maybe they shouldn't be eating so much? of? Chocolate, unfortunately, cocoa and dark chocolate yeah. are very high in absorbable oxalate turmeric and cinnamon people are throwing it in and tablespoonfuls into smoothies and and finding places to use them well and cinnamon has a blood sugar lowering effect that a lot of people are using it for but the oxalates make it no bueno well you probably could use it occasionally in small amounts if you're also lowering oxalates with avoiding the spinach or something else but if you're adding it to a Something that has chia seeds and anything that's a seed is pretty much horrible. Your it's sesame oxalates. seeds. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. See, plants need the calcium oxalate in their seeds because it's a great way to pantry up calcium and store calcium in a stable form. 
And um, it does all kinds of other things, including they think in plants that the calcium oxalate helps the plant to continue um, respiration overnight. So it's like stored sunlight for plants overnight. They can keep growing. Must be a nightshade trick. They must use oxalate there too. Hmm. So um, yeah, other foods that are low carb and high oxalate, there's, I would say the biggest problems are the seeds, certain spices, which yeah. are often seeds, the chocolate, and then the spinach is everywhere. Yeah. And yeah. nuts, of course. Almond, almond flour, boy, between the chia, the almonds, the chocolate, <laughs> the spinach, and the spices, you start doing the bread substitutes yes. with almond and chia and using chia left and right for whatever. It, that's way out of range for what you can handle. Of course, almonds have other toxins, too. Sure. So it's one thing to say, cut back on them, blah, blah, blah. But uh, I mean, obviously this is very new information. So right. what would you recommend as far as don't get more than this amount of it in a day? Right. Well, and how do you know how much you're getting? Because right. how do you get good data? <laughs> and then do you have to become a data geek on and how, how much, much is your is body what? making on its own? Just like the cholesterol. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and some people are worried that there are um, SNPs and other variabilities where some people are prone to making too much internally and need vitamin B6 and things like that to help damp that down. Um, so getting good data has been tricky too. Even the um, medical reports, they'll list off foods and they'll have the funniest list of what's high in oxalate and two or three of the things aren't high and then they don't list things that are high. There's a tendency in the urinary world that your kidney stone doctor will say, well, don't eat anything green, but there's a lot of greens that are low in oxalate, like watercress, arugula, lettuce, um, bok choy, things like that. Cabbage. Yeah. They're all low in oxalate. It's not greens. It's certain plants and plant parts that are high in oxalate. And it sort of depends on the plant biochemistry, how it was grown. There's natural variation in plants. But there are some biggies, like we've just talked about, that try not to make them staples in your diet. Yeah. For Is if for nothing else, just to prevent the agony that could occur. You have to think about how once it gets inside your body, what could happen to you. And, you know, if we get a minute, we might want to just th have a thought experiment about, okay, you eat it and then yeah, where let's does do it that. go? You want to do that? Yeah, do that right now. Okay, so you're eating it and it automatically starts, can be absorbed in the stomach, maybe even in the mouth, because the stomach is an acidic environment that helps yep. make it easy to absorb and, and all through the digestive tract. And that circulation around the digestive tract goes through something called portal circulation that's going straight to the liver. So it goes into your blood, then through the whole liver, and then up to the heart, then into the lungs and back to the heart then back out through the peripheral circulation through your head and hands and arms and eventually goes to the kidneys. So it has to do a long journey through a lot of vascular tissue. And that's where like insulin and other toxins, it's causing damage to the artery walls. And certain percentage, nobody knows how much of the calcification of the arteries has calcium oxalate in it. Now, kidney doctors think that any oxalate you absorb from your diet goes straight to the kidneys and all of it comes out of the body. But research shows that probably as much as 4% of what you absorb is retained over the long run and gets stuck in your arteries, in your heart, in your lungs, in your skin, in your brain, your thyroid. 
85% of us, if we're over age 50, have oxalate crystals in our thyroid glands. Wow. I had a big lumpy thyroid when I was sick with oxalates and didn't know why. And after I got on the diet, the lumps went away and my numbers got better and I needed less armor thyroid. How do you see lumps on a thyroid? Is it an MRI? Well, my primary care doctor said, hey, your thyroid's lumpy. (laughs) I was like, oh, it is. (laughs) How do you see that, though, is what I'm asking, I guess. I don't know. I guess you just feel it. I'm not a clinical um, primary care person who learns how to look and touch a patient. But that in itself is a lost art. You know, now they just order tests and look at your test results rather than look at your skin, your pallor, your organs and palpitate and see how everything's doing. Some doctors still do. I know my doctor, when I've gone in for a physical, he's pushing all over my body. So uh, some yeah, are still doing Yeah, that's kind that. of a good doctor. Yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> he wouldn't run it. It's funny. Uh, he's a good and bad doctor. He would do that, but he wouldn't run a fasting insulin on a known insulin resistant patient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I had to fire him. Um, and, and then you've got nutritional therapy practitioners who do the functional exam where they're touching people and, and looking for different points of uh, measurement. So yeah, I, I, th- I think that lost art is coming back in vogue Good. again, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think some doctors are just really seeing the limits of having so few tools and how the tests really aren't matching up with the patients are telling them. Right. And patients are so tired of being told there's nothing wrong with them. Oh Yeah. That's frustrating. As someone who's been in that position, it's it's helpless when you're a patient yeah. and you've got people that you're paying good money to know what they're talking about. And even specialists don't know what's wrong. Yeah. And you're spending a lot of time arranging appointments, getting off of work, spending half a day waiting around for that appointment. And for what? Just despair in some cases. And that's certainly what happens with oxalate problems. So you've been gladly like me eating sweet potatoes every day and serving up Swiss chard. I started growing Swiss chard as a nine-year-old. I love to grow beets and beet greens and Swiss chard. These are all high oxalate foods. My sister and I love to play with rhubarb, which is a classically high oxalate food. And my mother told us the leaves of rhubarb will kill you because there's a toxin in them, but the stalks are okay. (laughs) Wow. Uh, that's, so had a wise mama. Yeah. Well, we, what happened in World War One in England is they suddenly said, "You're all starving. You might as well go ahead and eat your rhubarb leaves anyway, and you'll be okay." And several people died, and then they withdrew that recommendation. But they had such a problem with Germany bombing the heck out of England that they got desperate enough to allow and suggest eating rhubarb leaves, and the oxalate can be toxic and it can kill you abruptly. Wow. Foods have been known to do that. Usually you show up as, with kidney failure and some people end up on the list for a new kidney just from eating too many peanuts, almonds, green smoothies, trying to lose weight, doing the healthy thing, and they end up on the waiting list for a kidney. So is that why a lot of vegans probably start to experience issues? It sounds like a lot of the foods that you mentioned are very vegan friendly um, and and we hear that they get... Uh, issues starting to pop up in their health. And of course, we've talked about various theories as to why, but it sounds like this oxalate issue could be a biggie. It's a biggie. It, oxalate is a biggie. I, I had my mind blown away when I finally figured out it was one for me, the ex-vegan. I have spent four years in the medical library digging up articles and I have tagged over 1200 articles on oxalate and I'm just astounded 
at how much we've already known that oxalate was a problem. We knew it in the 1800s. We knew it in the early 1900s. We knew it in the 1940s. And it just keeps getting ignored. And yes, vegans are very um, dependent on beans. Beans, many beans like black beans, white beans, pinto beans. These are very high in oxalate. And lectins. Beans. Yeah. Yes. Lectins, the big ugly protein, very different molecule than a than an oxalate. An oxalate's a tiny, uber tiny thing that turns into crystals that forms these crystals all over the place. And lectins are gigantic proteins that attach to carbohydrates and directly mess with your intestinal lining that way and can also get into the bloodstream and attach to various things. So they both attach oxalates and lectins. And they, I think lectins can accumulate, but not nearly as badly as oxalate. Um, and the body knows how to get rid of oxalates, but that process of getting rid of it, if you have been not letting the body let go because you eat them every day, this is a big problem now. Is we're just eating oxalate-containing foods year-round. Yeah. used to be that seasonally you get almonds for a month, and that was the end of almonds. You get spinach for uh, six weeks, and that was the end of that. And you, yeah. And you just didn't eat them all the time. And you didn't eat all the time either. <laughs> right. You'd take down a deer and you'd roast that for a day and then you'd party for a day. And then, you know, you'd take a day off and you wouldn't eat any, hardly, the sides weren't a big deal <laughs> as they are now. Now when we feast, we think we need six vegetables in order to justify <laughs> the three pies and two cakes. Because we know that offsets all those carbs and sugars. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's what's so distressing. We're using spinach, the most toxic, useless vegetable out there, to offset our sugar addiction. Wow. Yeah. So uh, we've touched on, obviously, oxalates very heavily here today and, and lectins. Are there any other plant toxins we need to be aware of? Well, you know, there's uh, phytic acid, which is an enzyme inhibitor and mineral chelator and that's what oxalate does too it chelates minerals and that interferes with digestion as does oxalate as does lectins po polyphenols which are supposedly so good for us interfere with the absorption of iron and um, can damage the liver and intestines as well saponins their enzyme inhibitors interfering with digestion so it seems like plants are out to get our digestion and undo us from our most important place <laughs> so is this a, a a call for people to choose a more carnivorous diet instead? I certainly am in love with eating meat, and I think that's a, a very appropriate food for human beings. We've been hunting and gathering um, insects and worms and fish and, you know, shrimp is a fancy insect that swims around uh, and large animals and, you know, the woolly mammoth. We've been doing that forever. And animal foods are full of the same things that we need. They're made of the same kinds of things we're made of. And they uh, have to be fairly non-toxic just to, to live. So I find animals that are raised appropriately to be fantastic nutrition and healing foods. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to play a little devil's advocate because that's what I like Good. to do, Sally. Uh, well, so, anything that helps the audience get their skepticism rattled. Absolutely. So what about the animals uh, and the food that they eat? Are there any oxalate rich plants that could be consumed by an animal that would then make that animal toxic? 
Well, there are things that make animals toxic, and often the animals get so sick in the process that they end up not being used for food. Animals, herding animals, do get in trouble with oxalates if they get into a patch of something. Just like us, they're not aware when they're eating an oxalate food that it's bad for them. You can't tell when you're eating it, and they get sick on it. But generally, um, when you measure animal foods, they're low to no oxalate from a nutritional at the nutritional level for or the consumer of the animal flesh. But there certainly are room for contamination of animals when you feed them the wrong thing and make them toxic and sick, when the feed or the areas they're in are contaminated with heavy metals or herbicides and pesticides. Those things bioaccumulate in the fat, which is tragic because the fat is the most precious part of the animal nutrition for human beings. Fat does so many things for our improved digestion, better utilization of minerals, better blood sugar levels, all kinds of fat-soluble nutrients like vitamin A, D, E, K. Yep. And so, you know, being careful about how we raise animals for food is so important. That's why I buy my animal foods directly from local farmers on clean land that's never been heavily industrialized and so on. Yeah, and and that's a big uh, topic of conversation within the keto community right now is this whole grass-fed versus green-fed. And I, I think when you look at it from the perspective of what are we putting in our bodies, don't we want to try to nourish our bodies with the best possible food that we can consume? And especially if we're trying to avoid oxalates and avoid lectins and all these other plant toxins and we're shifting our body over to more of a carnivorous diet, if you want the vast majority of your nutrition to come from that, don't you want the best to go in your body? You do. You certainly do. And it's lovely to get to know your local farmers. They're really nice people. And since they work with animals all day, they're happy to talk to you because (laughs) they love to talk to people. And, you know, visit the farms and get to know your local community. You're actually protecting the local land from development if you're keeping it viable financially for them to grow food. And the way for them to make a living is to cut out the middleman and buy direct from them. One other thing that I've done uh, is I've started having backyard chickens, Sally. So I have, it was so funny. We started off with four, uh, three years ago, two, three years ago now, and now we have 29. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I hope you have a big chunk of land. I have a huge backyard, about three quarters of an acre uh, where they can just roam around and, and run around and do what chickens do. As uh, as Joel Salatone would say, let the let uh, the chickenness of the chicken, uh, letting them uh, do what they do, and yeah. So and you they, haven't seen the hawkness of the hawk or the foxy <laughs> fox. Well, thankfully, we yeah we have a uh, uh, enclosed back uh, yard where we have them, and yeah, nothing has come down <laughs> as a predator to get them. I guess we've been very lucky in that aspect. Uh, unfortunately, some of the farmers don't get that lucky, and they'll lose a whole herd of of sheep to an illness or yes. a whole flock of chickens to a overnight raider. And it's financially devastating for them. They, they take on the risk and invest in the animals and care for them. And then they suddenly can lose. Well, it certainly gives you a whole new appreciation for where your food comes from when you have it to does. take care of the animals like that. And so if you're listening right now and you've never owned an animal that can be food or provide food in the case of the chickens with their glorious eggs that we have, um, try it and, and, you know, look at your local ordinances and make sure it's cool in your area. But man, oh man, that it's been the coolest thing for me as someone that's been in this space a long time, Sally, 
to to be able to say, hey, that egg came from my chicken. That's pretty amazing that you're able to travel so much and still keep chickens. That's, oh, we have a uh, we have a lady that gets the she's the benefactor of a lot of our eggs, and she's uh, not as well off. And so we'll work for eggs. Okay. Yes. So she well, we give her some <laughs> money too, but she takes care of the chickens and our kitty cats and stuff for us while we're gone. So <laughs> that's what you need is a grandmother for the chicken flock. Exactly. Exactly. So before we leave the oxalate issue uh, and and finish up today's show, is there anybody doing research on oxalates uh, currently that you're aware of? Well, there's ongoing oxalate research and has been for 200 years. Most of the oxalate research is happening on monolayers of kidney cells from dogs and humans. And that's not um, the kind of oxalate research I want to see. I want to understand more about the garden variety accumulation that's happening. What's happening as we eat oxalates in modern affluent diets where we get food all the time and now we're really pushing on these snacks that are full of high oxalate ingredients and eating all the time. This bioaccumulation becomes such a problem that once you go on a true low oxalate diet, now you've destabilized all this buildup of calcification in your bones and joints and skin and tendons and on uh, joint spaces coronary arteries maybe yeah yeah and so but the body's impulse is to get rid of the stuff but when it's got so much to get rid of at one time it can cause high levels of oxalate coming out and harm the kidneys or cause symptoms it's kind of like the body has to tear up the road and rebuild it you know how construction can be if you're going to put in a new mall or <laughs> need to dig up the utilities it makes a big mess and that's what happens on a low oxalate diet down the road, once your kidneys clear out, the rest of the road system wants to clear out. The organs want to be free of the oxalate accumulation, and no one is studying that. So I'm really hoping with my background in research design and academic work that I will attract more more colleagues who are willing to figure out how to get some funding to do more of this kind of study. Because you in the way we finance research now is we go to the NIH, the National Institute of Health, and put in a big grant, which takes a lot of work. I've done and cross this your fingers. <laughs> and well, yeah, your chances are one in 10 if it's a grant that everybody likes, but right. it has to be reviewed by the current luminaries in the field. And they have their own biases about what's so. A lot of them don't even think that this accumulation is happening until after your kidneys are failing. Right. And, it, and that's not true for a lot of us. And so they don't even... They, they can't, they're blinded by those same cultural uh, biases and their own egos because it could change the worldview of something they've spent a whole career on. So you're not likely to get approved by the reviewers and right. get funding that way. So we need more, you know, modern funding, web-based and nonprofit funding to come in to help get some of these more studies started. But we can start in the clinics by just Collecting all our carpal tunnel patients and seeing if we can put half of them on a low oxalate diet and see who can get on it and just see who it's practical for, what tools we need to get them going and how to stay with a long term follow up. Because in some cases, it may take years for us to really see how this works in people. Yeah, I, I think the take home message for the ketogenic community is maybe all that almond flour ain't such a good idea. It is a very tragic idea. And if you could all meet some of my clients who are now paying the price for their almond habit and now in terrible pain because their elbows are are clearing oxalate, 
and so on. They, they feel much better. Their preliminary problems are better and they're more functional and they're happier and they recognize the oxalate problem. But there is a, a process of healing down the road um, and more taxing of the kidneys and tissues that you could just avoid. Just don't pick out an almonds. It's not a natural human way to eat. Hmm. Her name is Sally Norton. Check her out. SallyKNorton.com is her website. And man, oh man, Sally, it's been a long time coming having you come on the show today. And I knew you'd be fascinating, but this was really good stuff to share here today. So thank you for imparting your knowledge on us. And thanks for being here today on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Thank you, Jimmy. It's so nice to be with you. And thanks for helping to get the word out about oxalates. Continue your good work. Thank you. Living La Vida Low Carb, this show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up them avocados, fry some eggs, time to explore. The longest running health podcast, hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage, we're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal, yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused, don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey. The Living Low Carb Show.com. Disc of Light.